what is that? Real question I was asked, what is that? It's a rotary telephone. What is a rotary telephone? It's how we used to make telephone calls. Uh, And just as it's difficult for youth of today to conceive of life uh, without the internet, let alone life where you would make a phone call on a device like this, and just as it's difficult for us to conceive of life without cars and planes and sky trains, it would have been equally difficult for those in the ancient world to conceive of life without temples and priests and sacrifices. Yes, you know, we live in an era where more and more people identify as irreligious than in any era before. But this wasn't the case in the ancient world. Temples were as readily available as Starbucks. You know, priests served up sacrifices like baristas serve up orange mocha frappuccinos. Yes, it's a Zoolander reference. Uh, Religious options, you know, were as nuanced and plentiful as drink orders. So to imagine life without temples and priests and sacrifices would have been as paradigm-altering as us to imagine life without Starbucks, or more so, us to imagine life without consumerism altogether. And so having just challenged the church to move on from milk to the solid food, the author of Hebrews is now ready to serve up the main course. Jesus is our great and faithful high priest. In fact, he's about to spend four entire chapters exploring this big and central idea of the letter. But it's a massive paradigm shift because it also means that Jesus has displaced the temple and priests and sacrifices of ancient Judaism and of every religion. And as a result, there's now this distinction between old and new, inferior and superior. The the old is being put away. The new is being exalted. And in light of Jesus, the author even calls this old system weak and useless. In our world, things are displaced all the time. We frequently upgrade uh, for the new and better option. We don't give any second thought to what is now perceived by us as useless and old and, and out of date. It's just part of our lives. So while calling the Torah, the law, weak and useless may not sound deeply offensive and disturbing to us, it would have been completely disorienting for an ancient Jew and confusing to the average person of the ancient world. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live without temples and priests and sacrifices? How are we supposed to draw near to God, let alone to the gods? And so the author, he knows that the early church that are following Jesus, they're on the forefront of this massive revolution. But they need to understand why Jesus is their great and faithful high priest. And so here's the question that we will ask to guide us through this complex passage this morning. Why is Jesus exactly the priest we need? Why is Jesus exactly the priest we need? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please grab one of the gray church Bibles and take it home with you. We would love for you to have that. And everything will also be up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." 
Melchizedek, we're finally here. I don't know if you're excited as I am. We've mentioned Melchizedek in passing three times in the letter, and now we finally get to meet him. Uh, and it's because of him, we're, we're dwelling with Melchizedek because the author sees a resemblance of Jesus. This is the word he uses, a resemblance of Jesus, which is somewhat surprising because Melchizedek only appears twice in the Bible, once in passing in the Psalms and his original appearing in Genesis. But the author of Hebrews insists there's something here, there's something about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, that we need to pay attention to because if we look at him, we'll actually learn more about Jesus. So when we look at Melchizedek in Genesis, we read that he was a priest of God most high. And this is a shocker. This is the ancient equivalent of Sixth Sense, spoiler alert, 1999, spoiler alert, Bruce Willis being a ghost in the movie. You know, because during the time of Abraham, the priesthood, it doesn't even exist yet. It comes much later, hundreds of years later. And yet, God already has a priest. God already has a priesthood during the time of Abraham. What? Like, where did this come from? And we don't know. As the author of Hebrews points out, Melchizedek has no genealogy. He's without beginning and end, which is unusual because if you've read through Genesis or all of Scripture, you know genealogies are all over the place. Like so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, which is like your favorite devotional readings when they come up in your Bible in a year plan. And, and the author even implies that because of this, Melchizedek has some sort of eternal quality to him. He's as mysterious as Cain's wife. We have no idea where she came from or where old Melky came from. And their presence reminds us that Scripture intends only to answer the questions it raises. Do you think the author of Genesis was surprised that Cain's wife came out of nowhere? He knows he's not explaining where Cain's wife came from. He also, or he or she, knows uh, where Melchizedek didn't or did come from. These anomalies in Scripture are there to remind us that sometimes we don't get the answers to the questions we think are important because they're not as important as the questions we should actually be asking. Melchizedek, to be clear, is not a pre-incarnation of Jesus. Some people think this. If you want to nerd out on that with me, we can talk about it. But that much is clear when you really get into the language. Rather, Melchizedek resembles Jesus in significant ways. But what's most important is that Melchizedek shows us how Jesus can even be a priest at all. See, today, you can get ordained online. It's really easy. You just type or get ordained online and you, you browse through some of the options and you choose one that looks like the least shady. And then you just click a button. If you can do that, you can get ordained. You know, you, you enter in your information. And uh, as, as you're doing this, you, you start thinking like, is this a good idea? But you just go with it. And if you can certify that you're over 13 years old, and if you're smart enough to unsubscribe from the newsletter, uh, which I am, uh, you can get ordained. Now, I thought when I would click this button that there would be some sort of test, but there wasn't. So I am now a legally ordained reverend of the Universal Life Church. St. Peter's Fireside Universal Life Church has quite a ring to it. But here's the problem. This was not an option in the ancient world. This was not an option in the ancient world because Jesus, he's continuing in the history of how God has spoken. 
And he can't just disregard what God has already said. Priests in ancient Judaism came from Aaron and the tribe of Levi. And it was the tribe of Levi only. You couldn't just declare yourself a priest. You couldn't go on the ancient equivalent of Google and get ordained online. And Jesus, he is from the tribe of Judah. So then how can he be a priest? Well, Melchizedek shows us that there's another order of priesthood. Jesus, he's not in the order of Levi. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he's not just part of a priesthood that precedes the very existence of Levi. It's also superior in every single way. And once again, this is how Melchizedek resembles Jesus. When it comes to Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchizedek is superior. Melchizedek is the one who blesses, and Abraham is the one who receives blessing. Abraham is the one who tithes, and Melchizedek is the one who receives the tithe. Uh, in the ancient world, this is all to portray superiority. And this is why the author of Hebrews says in verses 4 through 10, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. One might even say that Levi himself paid tithes through Abraham, for while he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. To stress this point further, the author says in verses 15 and 17, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus, he is a superior priest because he has the power of an indestructible life. He's not a priest temporarily. He doesn't just hold the office while he's alive. He holds the office forever because he lives forever, which is what the author says in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. But still... Still, this is really strange to our ears, isn't it? The author, yes, has creatively established how Jesus can be a priest, not of the tribe of Levi, but of the order of Melchizedek. Great, so what? As I mentioned a few weeks ago, priests, they're now on the periphery of society. You know, they're either the butts of, of, of butts, butt of joke or uh, jokes, plural. Okay, keep going. Uh, or the headline of horrific scandals or both. But priests, they're no longer central to our societal makeup and existence. So we might find it easier to relate to Jesus as king because we can relate to the need for good rulers and governance. Or we might more readily connect to Jesus as a prophet because we admire people who have a prophetic voice like Martin Luther King who call out corruption and seek justice and seek the common good. You know, but priests, what need is there for a priest? We have our alternatives. You know, we have doctors and, and psychologists and counselors and, and all these resources. What need is there for a priest? The author writes in verse 11 through 12, Now if perfection, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. And the author continues in verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment 
is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, the author is dwelling on this topic of priest because it's through a priest that we draw near to God. This is the working assumption. We need a priest in order to enter into God's presence. Do you know what I get asked fairly often? What is it that you do? Like people get that I talk a lot on Sundays, but like, what do you do the rest of your week? And the truth is nothing. I don't do anything at all. Uh, but people uh, often ask innocently. I'm just joking, by the way. I just answer email. That's what I do. But uh, people often ask innocently, you know, having no idea what a pastor does. And in the same way, we have no idea what ancient priests did. It's totally different than today. So here's a quick primer. Uh, the Levites as a tribe were chosen by God to serve God. And they were conduits of divine blessing. And so they would help lead festivals. They would help uh, lead celebrations. They would taught people the ways of God. They directed prayers and counseled people. And they pointed to people to God day after day after day. But the shock to the system is that the author of Hebrews is saying that everything the priest did, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. At best, it was a temporary fix because it couldn't make anybody perfect. You see, much of their problem was dealing with people, including themselves. What they actually had to deal with every day was a lack of holiness, continual uncleanliness and impurity, a lack of discipline, a lack of understanding, you know, intentional and unintentional mistakes, a lack of morality, illness, suffering, hopelessness, bickering, and on and on and on, day after day after day, every single day, they made sacrifices for themselves and for others. And they had to discern and aid people in making the right sacrifices, you know, a burnt offering or a meal offering or a peace offering or a sin offering or a trespass offering or my favorite, you know, the wave offering, which is a real thing. Uh, they, they prescribed the law. You guys need to loosen up. But they subscribed <laughs> the law to restore purity when purity was lost, to help the unclean uh, become ceremonially clean again, to help the sin-laden find ease of conscience and forgiveness. But it never lasted long. It was always a temporary fix. And so the, the process was repeated again and again and again and again and again. The problem is that people are not perfect. We're actually deeply imperfect and flawed. The problem is perfection. A few months ago, Julia shared a horrifying link with me, 20 plus uh, photos that will annoy the perfectionist in you. And uh, I had a tough time scrolling through this. I couldn't get through to the end because these are just terrible realities. And so some people would say, um, <laughs> so here's the thing. This collection of photos with supposed minor mistakes or imperfections, you know, it, it shouldn't bother us, they say. But I would argue the people who make these minor imperfections in the first place are the pathological ones, not those of us who can't handle their insanity. Like, good Lord, these sort of imperfections are awful. <laughs> imperfections in the world can make our skin crawl. They can haunt us. They can cause weeks of sleepless night in some scenarios. But then there's our own imperfections. You know, the parts of ourselves that are displaced or unaligned or incongruous with who we want to be or who we feel we should be. And we each respond to them in different ways. 
Some of us are perfectionists. I fall into this category. We refuse to accept any standard short of perfection. You know, for a perfectionist, there's no room for mistakes. You're extremely hard on yourself. You have very high standards. And the sad thing is, no matter how much success you may attain, it's never enough. And what's the result? Perfectionism crushes us. Research shows that perfectionism hampers success and is often the path to depression, anxiety, and what's in my manuscript, uh, addition, but I think I meant addiction. Uh, And as one researcher puts it, when perfectionism is driving, when perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun. Perfectionism is just a subtle version of self-hatred. And if you're a perfectionist and you're not convinced that you're driven by self-hatred, ask yourself this question. Would you ever speak to others the way you speak to yourself? Probably not. And if you did, would you have any friends left? See, the perfectionist, all they see is their imperfection, their shortcomings, how you fall short and all that needs to happen in order to improve. And we're always telling ourselves that we're not enough, that we need to do better, we need to work harder, that we haven't progressed enough, no matter how much we may have progressed. And so the truth is that you're not driven by perfection, you're driven by shame. We're trying to reach perfection so that we can finally accept ourselves, but you never will. And here's the truth. The perfectionist can rightly identify imperfections. They're actually too good at it. But the fatal flaw is that you believe you can fix yourself through self-hatred. And no one has ever been hated into a better person. Alternatively, some of us have learned to embrace our imperfection. Let's call this the path of the imperfectionist. And I think this is the trickiest movement in modern culture because I think it is incredibly close to the way of the gospel. There's a lot to be affirmed in it. As Brene Brown writes in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Perfectionism is self-destructive simply because there's no such thing as perfect. Perfection is an unattainable goal. And the result is an emerging psychology that helps us embrace our imperfections by showing ourselves compassion. Yes, we're imperfect, but we can learn to accept this about ourselves and we can learn to love ourselves as we are. But the flaw, one of the flaws of this movement is that people are then turning to self-compassion rather than God-compassion. They're turning to self-acceptance rather than God-acceptance. And it's a well that will run dry. Because if we're imperfect by nature, if we can accept that premise, then we'll also be imperfect in our ability to consistently show ourselves compassion and to show ourselves acceptance, which means that this approach will only work sometimes. Do you understand? It's a well that will run dry. We need a deeper well of compassion and acceptance than the one that we can find and muster up ourselves. Still, some of you here, you're just apathetic toward imperfection. You're the person who created all those photos. You know, like, it's just part of the human condition. And there's nothing we can do about it. So get on with life and ignore it. But deep down, apathy is just a band-aid for a deep sense of helplessness and hopelessness about the state of the world. It's actually to retreat and give up. There's nothing we can do about it, so why bother? So while the author of Hebrews is specifically highlighting the limitations of the ancient Jewish law, the truth in his argument is that every human attempt to deal with our imperfection, 
our lack of holiness, our lack of innocence, our lack of purity, the presence of sin in our lives, our lack of morality, our separation from heaven, our lack of the presence of God. Every human attempt to deal with this lack is useless and weak and imperfect at best. But why? Why? Why is it weak and useless? Well, as Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the bar. And he's only restating what was already said in the law. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God demands perfection and holiness. He calls us to attain it. He expects us to be perfect and holy in order to stand in his presence. This crushes the perfectionist. The bar is set even higher than you set it. You are called to complete purity and holiness like God himself. How on earth could you ever reach that standard? As Brene Brown said, uh, perfection is a truly unattainable goal for us. And so there's no hope for the perfectionist. But since God calls us to be perfect, it means it's not sufficient for us just to accept our imperfections either or to give ourselves compassion when we fall short of God's standard. You see, to seek self-compassion and self-acceptance outside of God is actually to stand above God and declare yourself as the judge. You're saying how you should be treated and not waiting for God's declaration. And we most certainly can't be apathetic to it all either. Because if God wants perfection, that means this whole world is in desperate need of help. But why does God care so much about perfection? Think about it this way. God made us to be like him. Every single person in this room, every single person you've ever met, every single person who's ever walked on this earth has dignity because they were made in the image of God. And our imperfections, our lack, our sins separate us from him like oil and water. You can't force two entirely different substances to merge. They must remain separate. You see, most of us, we can't even handle minor imperfections that make our skin crawl, and yet we expect God just to bat his eyelashes at minor sins that are in truth rebellion against him. We expect him to close his eyes to the realities that are soul-destroying as if it's not a big deal, or to overlook horrific circumstances in the world that are of our own creating. Do we really expect God to merge with a reality that is of totally different substance than he is? The perfect with the imperfect, the holy with the unholy, the sinless with the sinful. So returning to the question, why do we need a priest? And why can't God just overlook this gap and be more accepting of us? I mean, many of us have accepted our imperfections. Many of us are happy to show grace to other people's imperfections. Why can't God, why can't he be happy to turn a blind eye to these shortcomings? But in a way, this is like asking why lawyers can't exist. Why can't people just settle out of court? The reality is that sometimes the divide is so deep, the hurt so painful, the chasm of miscommunication so insurmountable that you need someone to mediate. You need someone to intercede. And sometimes the best lawyers are not only capable of interceding, but mediating. They're actually able to help the parties reconcile. 
So when it comes to our imperfection and God's perfection, our unholiness and his holiness, we need someone to intercede. We need someone to mediate this massive gap that our imperfections have created. You see, what God provided in the Old Testament was a temporary solution for this problem. It helped people continue to exist with them, but it was not a permanent solution it, until it was fulfilled by Jesus himself. So returning to our guiding question, why is Jesus exactly the high priest that we need? Look at verses 25 through 27. This is the, the uh, conclusion of the author's argument. Consequently, because he's a priest forever, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself on the cross. Because Jesus is a priest forever, because Jesus has the power of an indestructible life, he's able to save us to the uttermost. Underline that, the uttermost, through and through. He has the power and ability to save every single piece and nook and cranny of our imperfect lives, which means you're never too far gone. Your imperfections are never so distorted or beyond repair. Jesus knits and restores and makes whole everything within us. He has the power to do it. He can save us to the uttermost. And we can trust in this because he is always interceding for us. His whole life is intercession for us. Do you see this? Jesus, he's everything that we're not. Look at what the author said. Jesus is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. Jesus, in other words, is perfection itself. And it's through his perfection, not our own, that we can draw near to God. Because he offered up himself and made a sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. And so it's his perfect life, not our imperfect lives that matter. It's his sinless life that matters, not our sinful lives. It's his holiness that matters, not our own holiness. You see, Jesus shares his whole life with us in such a way that his holiness, his sinlessness, his perfection becomes our own. You see, we could never, ever draw near to God because of our imperfections. We can't. It's oil and water. But because Jesus shares his perfect life with us. We can draw near to God through him, the author says. Not through how moral you are, not through your track record, not through law keeping, but through grace. Not by your attempt to pursue perfection or show your self-acceptance, but by drawing near to God through him. Do you see, Jesus is everything we need because he's everything we're not. This means a few things. First, this means there's a deeper well of compassion than we can fathom. Jesus is perfectly compassionate. Jesus is perfectly accepting. He doesn't love the tidied, presentable version of ourselves. He loves us and he accepts us and he shows compassion to us exactly as we are, even when we can't accept or show compassion to ourselves. And he does so consistently and always. And second, this is a reminder that we can't attain 
perfection, but we don't need to either. Because Jesus has attained perfection for us and he shares it with us and he's also perfecting us and will perfect us. Here's one of my favorite promises in all of scripture. St. Paul writes to the Philippians, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You can never perfect yourself, but Jesus can perfect you because Jesus can save to the uttermost. No stone will be left unturned. He won't leave you half done. And his version of you, the perfect version of you, is far more beautiful, far more intelligent, far more creative than you can fathom or imagine. And while we might not see that version of ourselves in ourselves, while we might not truly know ourselves until we arrive in eternity, we can take a step every day into the presence of Christ and become more fully us. But lastly, this means that we cannot be apathetic toward the imperfection we see in the world. You see, the great temptation of this day and age is to be overwhelmed by compassion fatigue. It's to be overwhelmed by how broken this world is and how much imperfection it has. And there's two responses. The one is the person who burns themselves out trying to fix everything, trying to be the person who engages in the social issues that matter, but they're doing it from their own strength. The other is the person who just stays on the couch, posts on Facebook, and pretends like they actually did something. But Jesus is a reservoir for us. You see, this grace and compassion that we can experience in him, the acceptance he gives us, the love he pours out in us, the perfection he shares with us, it is a reservoir for us to go out into the world and see its imperfections and not stand above the world, but to stand within the world offering the same compassion and acceptance and grace we've received in Christ himself. You don't have to pretend like you have all the solutions. We're all imperfect, but we're all accepted and shown more compassion than we could dream of. And this is why Jesus is exactly the high priest we need. Jesus is perfect. He's for us. He gave his indestructible, perfect life for us. And he loves us and he accepts us. And he has unfailing compassion for us. And he's perfected us, he's perfecting us, and he will perfect us because he's always interceding for us. And he'll do it forever, without fail, without end. You see, nothing else, no person, no system, no temple, no priest, no sacrifice, nothing else can do what he has done, can do what he is doing, and can do what he has promised to do. 